If you're like me, when fall rolls around, you are all about it. Sweater weather, pumpkin spice lattes, apple orchards, corn mazes, you know, all the basic bitch stuff. But I am also obsessed with the darker side of things. Haunted houses, scary movies, ghost stories, legends, and lore. Over the years, one particular place in Iowa has intrigued me and a lot of other people, and that place is the Velisca Axe Murder House. This was the location of a horrible crime when eight people, a family of six plus two visiting children, were brutally murdered in their home as they slept. The house still stands today and has been preserved in its original state, still with axe marks in the walls and the ceiling, just as it was in 1912 when its eight innocent victims lost their lives on June 10th in the middle of the night. Over 100 years have passed since this horrifying axe murder rocked the small town of Villisca, Iowa, but the stain of negative energy still hangs heavy in every room of the residence. I recently gathered a group of eight brave souls together to spend one night in the Villisca Axe Murder House to revisit the scene of the crime and discuss the haunted history of this home. I'm Kelly Barron's Brink, and this is True Crime IRL, and today I'm bringing you the story of the Velisca Axe Murder House. Hey everyone! So yeah, you heard it right. I rented the Velisca Axe Murder House last weekend. No big thing. I've actually wanted to do this for so long and I finally just pulled the trigger, so to speak. I rented the house for an overnight. It costs about $500 for a night and if it's something you're just dying to do, see what I did there? I'm sorry, I'm so punny. Then I highly suggest you make reservations way in advance because the house is booked out consistently for a year or so ahead of time. So yeah, I lucked out. I got the house in October, perfect for spooky season. I had sort of an if you build it, they will come attitude. Knowing so many weirdos and podcasters, I I knew I could gather a fantastic group together to keep me company in this house. And I did just that. My friend Lauren Samples from the podcast Paradise After Dark and True Crime Headlines flew in all the way from Florida for this. And she was the yin to my yang. I'm a total skeptic, and I kind of laughed it all off, thinking ghosts are fake. And Lauren had a different attitude. She went into this overnight stay very nervous and apprehensive. Lauren was in Iowa for the full weekend, which included a podcast meetup as well. And we were also joined by Justin from Generation Y for the meetup. Justin, Lauren, and I had a fantastic meet and greet in Des Moines, and we had some super cool fans show up and hang out with us. 
and join us for appetizers at Zombie Burger in Des Moines and then some late night cocktails at Black Sheep in Des Moines. I have to give a shout out to Katie at Black Sheep. She's an awesome bartender. Thank you for the drink, Katie. You are just so sweet and we had an amazing time. Black Sheep is one of my favorite places to hang out whenever I get to Des Moines, Iowa. So go there if you get a chance. And later that night, Lauren and Justin took the stage at a karaoke bar singing and getting the crowd all riled up and it was a great time. I was also joined by some very special people and you'll hear them chatting a little bit through this episode. I am so fortunate to have my mom, Fran, not only still around, but at 82 years old, she's healthy, fun, and one of the most adventurous spirits I know. She was such a trooper all weekend and she had way more energy than me. She came to our meetups and to the axe murder house and she loved every minute of it. And my old his son Ian, another beautiful soul, joined us. I love you, Ian. And then finally, some new friends joined us in Villisca as well. My friend Charlie is a big paranormal buff, and she's done a ton of really cool paranormal investigations, and she brought all of her equipment with her. She's a total sweetheart, and she has a lot of crazy audio clips and sounds that she shared with me that she captured during our stay, so you'll be hearing those later in part two. We also had a mom and son ghost hunting group with us. Danny is a medium, actually, and her sons, Logan and Zach, came with her on this trip. They brought cool stuff with them, like dowsing rods, pendulums, and as a medium, Danny brought her intuition and knowledge. Her sons brought their own little stand-up comedy act, and they're hilarious, and they kept us laughing all night. So that was much needed in such a sad and heavy environment where eight people lost their lives. Speaking of eight, so there were eight victims in the house, and there were eight people in our overnight group. Spooky, huh? (laughs) Eight fantastic people, and it could not have been a better mix. And I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who came. So, this is part one of a multi-part Velisca Axe Murder episode. In this part, I'm going to give you the history of the crime and the details of what happened. And in the next part, part two, we're going to get into the hauntings because... This house is known to be one of the most haunted places in America. We've got a lot to tell you about that, so enjoy part one and stay tuned for part two. And you might want to sleep with the lights on, and you'll definitely want to lock your doors. In 1912 in Villisca, Iowa, the Moore family was considered affluent in their small community, and they were very well-liked. Josiah, age 43, was married to Sarah, 39, and together they had a beautiful, happy family. With their four children, Herman, 11, Mary Catherine, 10, Arthur Boyd, 7, and the youngest, Paul Vernon, just five years old. On the evening of June 9, 1912, the Moore family was attending a fun Children's Day program at their church, and it was a big deal in their town. Sarah was pretty involved in their church, and she had helped organize this event. 
lots of people were going to be there, including their good friends, the Stillinger family. 12-year-old Lena Stillinger and 8-year-old Ina Stillinger were good friends with the only Moore daughter, 10-year-old Mary Catherine, who went by her middle name, just Catherine. The church event wasn't scheduled to end until about 10 p.m. that evening, and the little Stillinger girls were apprehensive to walk in the dark two miles home. The walk home would have been especially dark for the little girls on this particular night, because the electric company and the Villisca Town Council were in the midst of a dispute about lighting, so the electric company had shut off all the lights in the town, coincidentally, on this particular day, making the town extra dark. The Moors arranged sleepover plans with the Stillingers, and Lena and Ina accompanied the family of six to their East 2nd Street home after church services ended. I can only imagine how delighted the six young children would have been after such a festive church event, organized especially for the kids, with the added excitement of having friends sleeping over. Their small farmhouse was most likely bustling with activity, laughter, and joy, which makes what happened in the overnight hours all the more heartbreaking. Bedtime would have come a little later than usual this evening. With not arriving home until around 10 p.m. and having guests, we can assume that all the kiddos were tucked in and sleeping by about 11 p.m. with J.B. Moore and Sarah right behind them. Lena and Ina Stillinger slept downstairs in the main floor guest bedroom. Up the steep staircase and just to the left was JB and Sarah's bedroom. Just past that was the bedroom that the four more children shared. In between the two rooms was a small door that led into an attic storage space, and this is where it is thought that someone may have been waiting and hiding until everyone in the house was fast asleep. The murders are thought to have happened sometime right after midnight through the early morning hours. Doctors estimated the time of death as somewhere shortly after midnight. An unknown person entered the Moore's home, first killing J.B. and Sarah Moore. They were bludgeoned to death with an axe, leaving their faces unrecognizable. The killer seemed to have managed to murder the adults without waking the children up, so it seems as though he worked very quickly and quietly. He then walked into the next bedroom, murdering the four more children, the youngest just five years old. The killer may have thought his work was done now, and he went back after the Moors were dead to further desecrate their bodies, hitting them over and over again with the axe until their faces were gone. His furious axe swings left scrapes and indentations in the walls and the ceilings, which can still be seen today. When touring the house, there are gashes in a few spots and their authenticity has been verified through photos taken at the time. After brutally hacking up the family, he went one by one and covered each person's head with clothing to cover their mutilated faces. With the Moore family gone, the killer went downstairs to wash his hands in a bowl of water and have a snack because axe murder apparently makes you hungry. 
But what it seems as though he didn't know is there were still two children alive sleeping on the main floor. But we'll get to that in a moment. First off, why do we think the killer was waiting in the attic for the family to go to sleep? Well, first of all, there were cigarettes in the attic that someone had smoked recently. Nobody in the house was known to smoke. So, was J.B. Moore just a closet smoker who hid his habit from his wife and smoked in the attic secretly? Or was the killer smoking as he hid in wait? Next, here's why the killer in the attic story makes sense. The killer may have known that the Moors were at church until later in the evening. He could have entered the house through the usually unlocked door while everyone was gone and just stayed very quiet until later that night. Hiding in the attic until everyone went to sleep would make perfect sense. He would already be upstairs where he could then quietly creep out of the attic, kill the adults, and then the children. And had he done that, he would not have known that Lena and Ina Stillinger were downstairs in the guest bedroom sleeping. It's thought that he killed Lena and Ina last, and the reason why we think this is because this is where the bloody axe was left. It would make sense that the axe would be left in whatever room the final killings were. So, to recap, what I think is that the killer knew the Moors would be at church until later in the evening. He also knew that the town would be extra dark that night because the streetlights were all out in the town. I'm not sure whether or not that affected the killer's decision to murder the family on that particular night, but it certainly wouldn't hurt a killer's plan to have it be darker than usual as they prowled through the night. I do think the killer snuck into the house while the family was gone and waited in the attic smoking until the family was asleep. I think JB and Sarah Moore were killed first before killing the Moore children next. I think the killer was taken by surprise finding two additional children in the house that he did not expect to be there when he walked downstairs and was getting ready to clean up. I haven't talked about Lena and Ina Stillinger's deaths yet, and although this entire episode is just one huge trigger warning, I mean, it's an axe murder involving children, this next part comes with an additional disclaimer because it involves the sexual assault of a child. Lena Stillinger, age 12, and Ina Stillinger, age 8, should not have been in the Moore house on the evening of June 9, 1912. And that makes this story all the more heartbreaking. Lena and Ina were the daughters of Joseph and Sarah Stillinger. They had seven sisters and their mother was pregnant at the time of their death. Sadly, she would not only lose Lena and Ina, but also the baby she was carrying at the time of their deaths, probably due to the immense stress she endured at this time. Lena and Ina are thought to be the final victims in the house. The killer first murdered the younger sister, Ina, and then struck the axe over Lena's head. However, it has been determined that Lena woke up prior to dying. She had a defensive wound on her arm, indicating that she may have tried to fight off her attacker. Sadly, she would not win that fight. 
Lena was found pulled partially down the bed, legs hanging off to the side. Her nightgown was pulled up to her chest and she was not wearing any undergarments. Her legs were spread apart and a kerosene lantern was still burning next to her body in the killer's effort to get a better look at the young girl. There was a blood smear inside Lena's right knee and she was more than likely sexually assaulted by her attacker either before or after her death. The sun would rise on Villisca, Iowa the morning of June 10th over a town that would be forever changed. Next door neighbor Mary Peckham got up at the crack of dawn to hang laundry on the clothesline and found it immediately unusual to see no activity coming from the normally busy Moore house. Working on her own homestead, doing chores both inside and out, Mary would grow more and more puzzled as the clock ticked by that morning with no sign of the Moore family anywhere. By 8 a.m., Mary Peckham had a sinking feeling that something just wasn't right next door. She knocked on the door with no answer. So at that time, she began doing a few essential things that the Moors would have normally done hours ago on a morning like this, such as tending to the chickens, feeding the animals, things like that. Pause for a moment as I chase this butterfly. I have to insert the fact that I love chickens. Ugh. I used to raise chickens when I lived on a farm and I had like 150 chickens at one point and I had six ducks and I'm obsessed and I think I, I just really like fowl in general. It's awesome to have farm fresh eggs every day. And did you know you can also eat duck eggs? They're really good and they lay like an egg every single day. Chickens are so sweet. They're kind of like cats. Aww. I miss having chickens, but I digress. Back to murder. So Mary Peckham next door was getting very worried. She even tried opening the doors, but they were all locked, and this kind of put her over the top with worry. She rang for J.B. Moore's brother, Ross, telling him something was up next door, but she didn't know what. She asked Ross to come over and check on the family, and he did. Like Mary, he knocked, tried to open the door, all of that, and nothing. Finally, he started going through his key ring to see if he had a key that could get him inside, and yes, he did. He unlocked the house and went inside, alone, while Mary stayed safe outside the door. The house was eerily still, quiet, dark. He immediately noticed that all of the curtains had been tightly drawn and covered with additional items of clothing to block out any light that could seep in, making the small house seem all the more stifling. Darkness and silence surrounded J.B. Moore's brother as he walked through the kitchen, into the parlor, and over to the main floor bedroom, where he saw the nightmarish carnage. Two little human shapes covered in blood and their now faceless bodies wrapped in pieces of clothing. Next to them was a kerosene lamp with the glass cover removed and the wick bent back. On the floor was the obvious murder weapon, J.B. Moore's axe, covered in blood. Ross Moore was instantly in shock. He had never seen such a horrendous slaughter 
and neither had anyone in the town, and his brain could just not process what he was looking at. Instantly, he was in shock, dazed, and stumbled his way back to the porch where Mary Peckham waited for him. All he could manage to utter were the words, Something terrible has happened. This next few minutes, I'll be directly quoting VelliscaIowa.com, which is the official website of the Velisca Axe Murder House. The authorities were called shortly after Ross Moore walked out of the home in shock, and once the murders were discovered, the news traveled quickly in the small town. As neighbors and curious onlookers converged on the house, law enforcement officials quickly lost control of the crime scene. It's said that up to 100 people traipsed through the house, gawking at the bodies before the Velisca National Guard finally arrived around noon to cordon off the area and secure the home. The only known facts regarding the scene of the crime were... Eight people had been bludgeoned to death, presumably with an axe left at the crime scene. It appeared that all had been asleep at the time of the murders. Doctors estimated the time of death somewhere shortly after midnight. Curtains were drawn on all the windows in the house except two, which did not have curtains, and those windows were covered with clothing belonging to the Moors. All of the victims' faces were covered with clothing after they were killed. A kerosene lamp was found at the foot of the bed of Josiah and Sarah. The glass cover was off of it, and the wick had been turned back. The cover was found under the dresser. A similar lamp was found at the foot of the bed of the Stillinger sisters. The cover was also off of that. The axe was found in the room occupied by the Stillinger girls. It was bloody, but an attempt had been made to wipe it off. The axe belonged to Josiah Moore. The ceilings in the parents' bedroom and the children's room showed gouge marks apparently made by the upswing of the axe. A piece of keychain was found on the floor in the downstairs bedroom. A pan of bloody water was discovered on the kitchen table as well as a plate of uneaten food. All the doors were locked. The bodies of Lena and Ina Stillinger were found in the downstairs bedroom off the parlor. Ina was sleeping closest to the wall with Lena on her right side. A gray coat covered her face. Lena, according to the testimony of Dr. F.S. Williams, lay as though she had kicked one foot out of her bed sideways with one hand up under the pillow on her right side. Half sideways, not clear over, but just a little. Apparently, she had been struck in the head and squirmed down the bed, perhaps one third of the way down. Lena's nightgown was slid up, and she was wearing no undergarments. There was a blood stain on the inside of her right knee, and what doctors assumed was a defensive wound on her arm. Dr. Linquist, the coroner, reported a slab of bacon on the floor in the downstairs bedroom, lying near the axe. Weighing nearly two pounds, the bacon was wrapped in what he thought might be a dish towel. A second slab of bacon was found in the icebox. There was very little evidence left behind at the scene, and what evidence they did have was corrupted and contaminated due to all the people coming through the house. But even with all of that, some suspects did emerge over time. 
One suspect in the murders was Frank Jones. Jones was a Villisca resident and an Iowa State Senator. Josiah Moore and Frank Jones hated each other. JB had worked for Frank Jones at his implement store for many years before leaving to open his own store. JB Moore allegedly took business away from Frank Jones, including one of their biggest clients, a very successful John Deere dealership. Moore was rumored to have had a torrid affair with Jones's daughter-in-law, although this may have just been town gossip and there's no real evidence to support this. And, spoiler alert, but when we were using the spirit board in the children's bedroom in the Velisca Axe murder house, Sarah Moore's ghost came through and she was speaking to us. And girl, she had some things to say about that little rumor. You'll have to listen to part two to get Sarah's exclusive scoop on whether JB was really having an affair or not. And then on the suspect list, we have Reverend George Kelly. Reverend Kelly was an odd duck. And five years after the Velisca murders in 1917, Kelly was arrested for the murders. He actually confessed to the crime, but that was after many hours of interrogation and he later recanted. And we know that false confessions are a very real thing. After two separate trials, he was actually acquitted. Reverend George Kelly was a traveling minister in town on the night of the murders. On June 8, 1912, he came to Villisca to teach at the Children's Day Services, which the Moore family attended on June 9th. He left town around 5.30 a.m. on June 10, 1912, just a few hours before the bodies were discovered. And like I said, Reverend Kelly had confessed to the murders in court, but the jury just did not believe his confession. Kelly was described as weird. He apparently had suffered a mental breakdown in his teenage years, and as an adult, he was accused of being a peeping Tom and several times asking young women and girls to pose nude for him. In the weeks that followed the murders, he showed a lot of interest in the case and wrote many letters to the police, investigators, and family of the deceased. This caused people to suspect that he may have been involved. He even claimed at one point that he witnessed the murders. His known mental illness made authorities question whether he knew the details because of having committed the murders or if he was just imagining this account. In 1914, two years after the murders, Kelly was arrested for sending obscene material through the mail. He was sexually harassing a woman who applied for a job as his secretary. He was sent to St. Elizabeth's Hospital, the National Mental Hospital in Washington, D.C. Even though he was acquitted in not one but two trials for this crime, it is still thought to this day that he was a strong suspect. But just because he was a strange man, that does not make him a murderer. And there are a few other suspects that I think might be a better fit. The next suspect, and I think a pretty good one, was a man named William Blackie Mansfield. Nine months before the murders at Villisca, a similar case of axe murder occurred in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Two more axe murder cases followed in Kansas, 
one of which was just four days before Velisca. The cases were so similar that investigators thought it was quite possible that they were committed by the same person. And it doesn't stop there. There were several other unsolved axe murders along the Southern Pacific Railroad from 1911 to 1912. The M.O. in the Colorado Springs murders was almost identical to Velisca. H.C. Wayne, his wife, and child, and Mrs. A.J. Berman were found dead and had been murdered with an axe. Bed sheets were used to cover the windows to prevent passersby from looking in, which was just like at the Moore House in Villisca, where the murderer hung aprons and skirts over the windows to cover them. The murderer in Colorado Springs wiped the blood off his axe and covered the heads of the victims with clothing just like in Villisca also. Detective James Newton Wilkerson of the Burns Detective Agency in Kansas City thought that William Blackie Mansfield was responsible for all of these murders and more. He also believed that Mansfield was responsible for the axe murders of his wife, infant child, father-in-law, and mother-in-law in Blue Island, Illinois on July 5th, 1914, two years after the Velisca murders, and the axe murders of two other people in Aurora, Illinois. According to Detective Wilkerson's investigation, all of the murders were committed in exactly the same way, which meant that the same man probably committed them. Wilkerson stated that he could prove that Mansfield was present in all of the crime scenes on the night of the murders. In each murder, the victims were hacked to death with an axe and the mirrors in the home were covered. And that's a weird consistency that the mirrors in the homes of each murder were covered up. That's not just something that happens at a normal crime scene. A burning kerosene lamp with the cover off was left at the foot of the beds and a bowl of water where the murderer washed his hands was found in the kitchens of the crime scenes as well. In each case, the murderer avoided leaving fingerprints by wearing gloves, which Wilkerson believed was strong evidence that the man was Blackie Mansfield, who knew that his fingerprints were on file at the Federal Military Prison at Leavenworth. Wilkerson managed to convince a grand jury to open an investigation in 1916, and Mansfield was arrested and brought to Montgomery County from Kansas City. However, Payroll records provided an alibi that placed Mansfield in Illinois at the time of the Velisca murders. He was released for lack of evidence, and later he won a lawsuit against Wilkerson, and he was awarded over $2,000. Wilkerson believed that pressure from state senator Frank Jones resulted not only in Mansfield's release, but also in the subsequent arrest and trial of the Reverend George Kelly. Yet another suspect in the Velisca Axe murders was alleged serial killer Henry Lee Moore. Moore shared the same last name as the Velisca victims, but he was not related to the J.B. Moore family. Henry Lee Moore was convicted of the murder of his mother and grandmother several months after the murders in Velisca, and his weapon of choice was an axe. Moore was never charged with the Velisca murders, but he's definitely still considered a suspect. 
And the final suspect I'm going to mention comes straight out of the 2017 book The Man from the Train by Bill James and Rachel McCarthy James. This book discusses the Velisca Axe murders as being connected to a bigger series of murders in the U.S. all committed by the same killer. Bill and Rachel James did a deep dive into the Velisca Axe murder case in an attempt to solve it. And they think Paul Mueller, an immigrant from Germany, committed not only the Velisca murders, but at least 59 other murders across the U.S. in the course of over a decade. The authors of the book scoured through newspaper archives from the early 1900s that made mention of murders at the time similar to the Velisca crimes, and they found numerous commonalities. First of all, as the book alludes to, the killer selected families who lived near railroad tracks. He also seemed to usually strike in the middle of the night while his victims slept. He used the blunt side of an axe that he'd find in the home, rather than the blade side, to strike the victims in the head and face. After he killed, he'd leave the axe in plain sight. He also covered the victims' heads with blankets, clothing, or cloth. He covered the windows from inside the house and locked the doors before leaving. There was often also a sexual component to his crimes towards a preteen girl, as with Lena Stillinger. I highly recommend reading the book The Man from the Train if you'd like to read more about Bill and Rachel McCarthy James's investigation into this unsolved case. Their theory on Paul Mueller as the killer and the Velisca Axe murders being just one part of the serial killer's trail definitely has legs and is thought to be a highly likely explanation. The Velisca Axe Murder House has become sort of a novelty in American folklore. A place to visit, a place where people try to challenge the ghosts of the past to show themselves, a place where people giggle, pose for silly pictures, and joke about hauntings. It's a place where the passage of time has us so far removed from that we seem to sort of have forgotten that the Velisca Axe Murders were real. A beautiful family was annihilated here. Six sweet little children ranging in age from just five years old to 12 tragically and painfully lost their lives. The quaint town of Villisca has forever been penned as the axe murder town. If you're a believer in the paranormal, then you're going to want to listen to part two of this episode. The stories that Sarah Moore's ghost told us on the Ouija board from Beyond the Grave are creepy, to say the least. A mother still dwells within these walls. She weeps here for her family, and her spirit cannot move on because of the guilt she feels, and because of her innate need to protect and watch over the children in the afterlife. This house is haunted by ghosts, uh, I don't know, but definitely by the true and tragic reality. There's a very real and very sad energy left behind in the Velisca Axe Murder House. It's an energy that you can feel, and as our recordings will show you in part two, an energy that you might still be able to hear. I'm Kelly Barron's Brink, and this is True Crime IRL. Until next time, lock your doors, people. The Moore family didn't. And we all know how that turned out.
True Crime IRL is written, produced, and hosted by Kelly Barron's Brink. We are part of That's Not Canon Network and TNC Productions in Brisbane, Australia. For more information, go to truecrimeirl.com. True Crime IRL theme music is produced by the captain at True Crime Garage. Thank you.